Psalm 32, the first five verses. We're going to begin here. Praying my guilt and shame. Did you know that the book of Psalms teaches us how to express the range of every human experience and emotion? This morning we learned how to encounter God in prayer, how to begin prayer, the language of prayer. If you find prayer difficult like I do, and you need to figure out what you should say and what you should pray, in any experience or emotion, God gave us this book. Your anxiety, your fears, your envy, your depression, your despair, anger, all of it. And all the positive experiences and emotions too. Today we're going to look at praying my guilt and shame. Let's give our attention to this. A masculine of David, Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. It's great to have kids crying, commenting. No, really, I mean that. That's part of what a church family should be like in any setting, especially in worship. Let me begin with this. The director of British Institute on Mental Health once said that if I could assure all my patients of complete forgiveness, I could send 50% of them home. If I could assure my patients of complete forgiveness, real, actual, felt forgiveness, half would be able to go home. Okay, forgiveness. But forgiveness from what? Forgiveness from what? Why Why need to be forgiven? According to the Holy Scriptures, guilt is the resultant and legal condition of sin. According to God's revelation, the way that the moral order, the spiritual universe works, just as you know there are physical scientific laws, if you jump down off a high place, you'll get really hurt or die. Spiritually speaking, morally speaking, there are just laws. And you can try to mess with them and break them all your life because they're invisible but you will surely feel it. Whether you believe in God or not, there are consequences to breaking sport, spiritual and moral laws. And even if you don't have the feeling, according to the scriptures, is a legal objective condition. It's a state that you're in. And the Bible's way more concerned about being guilty than feeling guilty. Being guilty than feeling guilty. Who's a 23-year-old from Texas? I found this online. Who describes herself as spiritual but not religious? Has visited a daily confession website almost every day for five years. Here's why: She quote, "I like reading people's confessions because it's nice to know that I'm not any more selfish, petty, conceited, weird, or macabre than any than anyone else in America." 
So for Kate and for a lot of people, even if you've grown up in church or not, for you, forgiveness is you need to be forgiven from feeling like or being judged as worse than someone else. Kate's issue and your issue has nothing to do with God. It just has to do with self-perception. It has nothing to do with God, therefore requiring forgiveness from God. Rather, it's a experience that you're just no worse or maybe worse than the average person. This is what we call self-help therapy. Far removed from biblical theology. You see, if your main concern at this church or tonight or in your life has been so far... How can my life be maximally fulfilling and happy and healthy and basically better than the average? And how can God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit get me there? I do want to suggest to you, my friends, you do not know the living God. You do not know the gospel. You do not know the Bible. You have completely twisted everything upside down because God God is the end. Glorify him and for you. To be used for his sake. First and foremost. Be forgiven by him first. Is why Jesus came. So tonight we're starting to talk about. Not a psychiatric. Or just an emotional or subjective. Or social problem. We're not talking about a scientific problem. We're not talking about a problem. That a therapist or an education. Or philosophy professor can fix. I assure you. None none of those guys can fix this. This is a spiritual problem. Deeply spiritual. And as reverberations manifold, exponential throughout the entirety of your life. And if it's a spiritual problem, it needs a spiritual solution. It is a God-sized problem. In fact, it's a God-wrought problem. And only God can redeem it and heal it. It's called forgiveness. So, how do you deal with the guilt of sin? A legal condition. Being guilty more than feeling guilty. First, the psalmist deals with his sin personally. He gives us a roadmap of how to pray and deal with the guilt of your sin. He deals with it personally. He does not say it was my parents' fault. He does not say it was my school's fault. He does not say it's the education's fault. It's not the church's fault. It's not my spouse's fault. Right? First five years of marriage, we fought long, hard, stubborn, and stupid. Because we both thought, I was never this irritated and angry and resentful until I met you. You brought, you just came and brought all this. That's the first five, six years of marriage in summary. And then by the grace of God, the next five years, if you last beyond five years, the whole question changes. Oh, it wasn't my wife's fault. It's always been me. And she just has exposed and shown what's always been wrong with me. It's been my fault. She just brought it out. The psalmist squarely takes the blame the responsibility of sin upon himself. I am not saying every suffering and trauma was your fault. Absolutely not. You got taken advantage of. You were abused. You were lied to. You were molested. That's not your personal fault. But generally speaking, with so many sins, the psalmist here says, it's my fault. He deals with it personally. Personal pronouns. My, 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 mine. And because guilt is personal, it brings personal misery. 
Notice how he describes it in verses 3 and 4. My bones wasted away. I groaned all day long. <clears throat> my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is poetry, so commentators aren't sure what is going on. But he could be physically suffering, debilitated, losing all energy. His immune system is low. He can't get up out of bed if you take it literally. Did you know guilt can do that? Did you know guilt can drain all energy and health and joy out of your body? Because guilt is personal, he is suffering for it personally. If it's not physical, if it's not literal, it could be metaphorical, it could be figurative. Psychologically, emotionally, it's psychosomatic. Well, my friends, did you know that our greatest problems and our greatest issues in life isn't just psychology or emotional or physical at its root it has something to do with god and a breakage in our relationship with god and because of personal guilt it produces personal misery the psalmist even goes further to just pinpoint spell it out so you can make no mistake about it where is this guilt coming from in psalm 32 he says it in verse 4 your hand that is metaphorical speech. It says, God, if you had a hand, how heavy? I mean, forget Thanos and Avengers. Forget that guy's fists. How heavy and massive and infinitely weighty would be the hand of God? Here's what the psalmist says. I feel like your hand is crushing me. Where is this guilt coming from from the psalmist? Not just the poor upbringing. Not just poor self-esteem. Not just indigestion. He says it is directly impersonal with God. And it's his hand weighing him down. Sapping out all his strength. So how can you find relief and how can you be lifted up? The way to begin to deal with your guilt is you got to be personal about it. Because you know it brings personal misery and it's from a personal God. So how do you get lifted up out of it? Let me just tell you quickly how you won't. How you won't. Okay? Typical of how we try to deal with guilt. Number one, you just keep silent about it. Verse three, when I kept silent. This is so popular in Asian circles. Because you don't talk about it, you think it's just going to go away. Because you're stoic. Because you're a man. Like, there's a category out there who might be the most psychologically, verbally, emotionally stunted, the most underdeveloped. It's called an Asian male. (laughs) And when you got all kinds of feelings and experiences and someone asks you, how are you doing? You either go silent or grunt or talk about something else, but you have no idea even how to put it into words. As long as the psalmist kept silent about it. You see, he pretended it wasn't a problem. It was a problem. Here's a second way guilt will not go away. You just distract yourself and hopefully feel better with time. You overwork. You do really well at work. You are killing it at work. You think somehow that's going to take care of guilt. You overcompensate with your kids or your wife. You're like extra good as a husband or father all of a sudden. You think that's going to take care of guilt. Silence won't solve it. 
doing better over time won't solve it. Here's a third. Guilt and sin is not covered by becoming a better you. Silence won't solve it. Time won't solve it. And then just moral improvement won't solve it. Joel Osteen, America's most popular pastor, at least some several years ago, according to Time Magazine, written several books. One book is entitled, Become a Better You, Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day. Seven Keys to Improving Your Life Every Day. I'm at a retreat. I'm a one-time guest. So sometimes I can just talk about things I can't talk about in my own church, right? Yesterday, I just went there. I talked about money. Because I don't care. I don't go to this church. <laughs> you better give your maximum, not your minimum. <laughs> and I usually don't ever, ever try to criticize other pastors or leaders or churches or anything like that. But this one I'm going to have to. Joel Osteen, become a better you. Here's the way I'm going to criticize it. Do you know that a lot of sermons today, even in Christian churches, sound just like Joel Osteen? Do you know that? The point of the sermon is if you become more like David, then God's going to make you defeat all the Goliaths in your life. The moralism, it's like Aesop's fables. If you just become a better person, pray harder, fast harder, do all this, then God will bless you more. Once again, that is not a biblical gospel. It's a self-help. Jesus is like a cosmic genie. He's there. As long as you improve, then everything will go better. Don't take my word for it. If you think I'm being too biased, let's just go to Joel Osteen. Do you know that the Library of Congress has classified this book as number one, self-actualization, parentheses, psychology. The Library of Congress knows it's a psychology book, but Christian bookstores sell and say, this is Christian. Astute non-believers know the difference between Needing forgiveness from God versus I'm just going to become a better version of myself. I don't need forgiveness. God's going to always make me happy and healthy and successful anyways. Because you're silent and stoic about it won't cure guilt. Because you wait on it, passage of time won't let God just forget about your guilt. And certainly becoming a better you a better religious spiritual person will not get the hand of God off of you. So how then does the psalmist deal with the guilt of his sin? Oh, the characteristics of biblical confession. He confesses it. He confesses it. First, he's starkly, he's stark honest about it. He's brutally honest about it. Honest. Honest. Why does David mention in verse 2, blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit, no trickery. 1 John chapter 1 verse 8, the apostle John tells us, if there's anybody in this room who says you have no sin, the truth is not in you. You're utterly blind and deluded about yourself. If there's anyone who says that they have no sin, the word of God, the word of truth is not in you. You're tricking yourself. But this psalmist is honest about his sin. Second characteristic of biblical confession. It's comprehensive. 
comprehensive. He uses three different English words, at least, right? In the ESV here, different translations for sin. He doesn't just say sin, does he? He says sin and transgressions and then iniquity, iniquity. Why does he use three different words? Because he wants to show off. He went to SAT schools. He has great vocabulary. Why does he use three different words for sin? It's from the Hebrew, and they all have different meanings. They have different dimensions. I'm not going to get into the differences of meanings, but this is what we need to know. He doesn't just confess sins. He confesses transgressions too and iniquities. Let me categorize it this way. He confesses things he thought. He confesses sins he felt. He confesses sins he did. But according to Jesus, not only the greatest teacher, but God himself, the way God judges you and I is not just what we did visibly. It actually all the way goes to what we think and felt. Michael Horton, a theologian and popular writer at Westminster, California, says, there are sins in my heart that my hand just haven't gone around to doing yet. And how does the psalmist deal with his sin? Not just the things he did, things he thought, things he's felt. It's comprehensive. You see, he's confessing all kinds of sin in total, comprehensively. Third characteristic of biblical confession. It doesn't go away through silence. It doesn't go away with time, the passage of time. And it does not go with the religious effort to become a better you. You got to be honest. You should be comprehensive, total. And then third, not by implication. If you're going to be comprehensive, it's specific. It's specific. One by one. In Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5. Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5. You know that book that you never make it through. New Year's resolution. It's like your favorite book. I can just tell the joy. <laughs> Leviticus chapter 5, verse 5. It says, the Israelite... If he confesses in what way? In what way he has sinned? Why does it say that? Specific. That's a painful part. That's a painful part. But it's an absolutely necessary part to any healthy relationship. Listen close, my friends. If you're used to confessing your sins on just a weekly basis because you pray the Lord's Prayer... Forgive me for my debts as I we've, I've forgiven my debtors. Forgive me for my trespasses as I forgive those who trespass against me. If that's basically the extent of how you confess your sins. It's just general. It's just very bland. I just do it once in a while. I will tell you that just goes to show how dysfunctional, how general, how distant your relationship is with God. You see, if and when I sin against my wife, sorry, Specifically and personally, there is no way I can get away with, Sonny, I'm depraved. Total depravity. I go over the creeds of Calvinism and I give her a creed of how sinful I am. You know, so I'm just generally sinful. I'm sorry. To properly appreciate and to actually show that I get the responsibility of my sin and that I want to repent and actually change for the sake of the health of my relationship, I have to specifically confess in what way I have hurt her, in what way I have offended or ruined her trust, or I have deteriorated her respect, 
In what way I have gone against her? Any relationship of health and worth having operates this way. Why would our relationship with God be any different? You know, God, I, I, I confess to you that. You know, I, I just got totally drunk again. God, I confess to you that I have really been cheating. I have been absolutely cheating on this at my work. God, I confess to you my utter lust and my envy of people. Comprehensive and specific. The Israelites should confess in what way. Otherwise, it does not show you value the other person much. Christian people, you're always sons and daughters of God. Christian people, you are always in a relationship with God, even in sin. But if you don't know how to confess, honestly, comprehensive and specifically, we call it, you're not in intimate fellowship with God. You're not very happy as a child of God. You're not very secure as a Christian believer. You're not enjoying it, loving it. Usually you're miserable, conflicted, and just lost, even as a child of God. You're not in the Father's bosoms and in his arms, tasting pleasure that go well beyond any pleasure of this world, You're walking on the other side of the street. God still knows you. He calls you by name. A shepherd keeps calling after you, but you're going the other way. Biblical confession in dealing with your personal guilt before a personal God because it brings, you see, personal misery. You can always be in relationship, a child of God, but be certain of this. You can be miserable. Miserable. And all that misery which Jesus died and paid for, you are not appropriating. We can find relief and rescue if and when we confess. Proverbs 28 verse 13, he who hides or tries to pretend or cover over their sin will not, will not prosper. But he who confesses them, he who confesses them will be lifted up. There is unbelievable promise and relief in verse 5 of Psalm 32, though. If you deal with your guilt in that way, it says, and you forgave, and he uses the third English word for sin, the iniquity of my sin. You forgave, forgave. So we're going to learn one Hebrew vocabulary, one Hebrew word. Though a Hebrew word that has been translated into forgave is nasah. Nasa. Can you say that with me? Nasa. Nasa. There you go. You're going to leave this place feeling like you're a Hebrew scholar now. Nasa. After I confessed, God, you, Nasa, forgave the iniquity of my sin. That literally means to lift up. To lift up. You see, the problem is, is a personal, infinite, weighty God, his hand is coming down against you. He biblically confesses. And then what does God do with his hand? He lifts it up off of you. On the day of atonement, back to our favorite book in Leviticus 16. All of Israel would gather 
to a great high priest by the name of Aaron. And he would list off and confess all the sins of the people, at least the ones he knew of. So how long do you think that took? Once a year, Day of Atonement, the great high priest would have all the people of Israel. He would confess them honestly, comprehensively and totally and specifically. And after he did that, they would bring out a goat, a live real goat. And Aaron would place his hands on the head of the goat. And on the day of atonement, which means to cover over sin and make at one, you one with God. On the day of atonement, Aaron would pray honestly, comprehensively, specifically the sins of the people of Israel. And symbolically, he would pray it while he put his hands on the head of the goat. And after he prayed all the sins of the people on the head of the goat, symbolically looking like it's transferring. You see, it's transferring, putting all the sins of the people on the head of the goat. The same Hebrew word is used where the goat would nasa, the sins of the people. And then do you know what the goat would do? It'd go off into the wilderness and never come back. That's where we get scapegoat. That's where we get scapegoat. And this was a foretaste of the gospel of Nassau to come. If you see movies of Jesus Christ holding a heavy wooden cross, looking like it's very heavy, it was, because he hasn't eaten or drunk the night before, his back is a torn, lacerated mess, he is utterly exhausted, and it looks like physically he is struggling under the weight of the cross, trying to carry it up. One of the gospel authors said someone had to come and help him. A man from Africa helped him with that cross. But the movies could never depict to you why that cross was so heavy. It was not just a physical weight. You do understand that what Jesus was carrying was not just a wooden cross. He was feeling the wrathful, holy hand of God coming down on him. He was feeling the weight of the sins of the world, totally and specifically, of every sinner throughout all of history come crushing down upon his head, his body and soul. But when Jesus lifted up the hand that should come and crush me, and that hand came crushing down upon him. We call that substitutionary atonement. He went through the crucifixion because that is what you and I deserve. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The gospel is that God lifts up his hand. In and through Jesus Christ, our scapegoat. And this is why the psalmist says, how blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven. How blessed means complete happiness, total, total wholeness and health. How blessed and rejoicing, how free and light am I that I don't know how, but God lifted up his hand on me because he put his hand down on Jesus. 
my scapegoat, my substitute savior. And this is a beautiful expression of confidence in someone else, not myself. Now, practical question. Well, pastor, I've done this once or twice and I do it at retreats or once in a while where I do confess, honestly, comprehensively, and specifically. And these days, I've been confessing the same thing over and over and over and over and over and over again. I, I, don't, I don't feel anything. I don't feel forgiven. In fact, I'm getting tired of sermons like this. I'm getting tired of this spirituality business because it doesn't work for me where I confess, but I don't really sense that I'm being forgiven. I don't feel any lighter or freer. Can I suggest something to you? What might be happening? I've been in your shoes. I struggle with that. I know exactly how you feel. Where you confess, even to a priest or a pastor, it's like really, really incredibly deep, rich experience. But then when you do it often, it doesn't really do much for you. Can I just suggest why you may be feeling this way? Listen. It's about Jesus and God lifting up his hand off of you. It's not about you trying to lift yourself up. So here's what that means. The gospel is the most humbling thing. It's the most counterintuitive thing. You could be less Christian going to church. Did you know that? Because the church, you think, actually keeps telling you, you just need to become a better you. But here's the gospel. You will start to feel more forgiven when you trust in God's ability to forgive you in Christ more than your own ability to forgive yourself. I'm guaranteed, I know this is true in so many Asian When you stop trying to forgive yourself and you really trust in the ability of Jesus Christ to carry all that weight and guilt more than your own ability to forgive yourself. Did you know that's actually when you start to believe the gospel? Did you know that's what it means to believe the gospel? Oh. Who do we think we are, by the way? We make so much of ourselves and so little of God. You think you have more kindness and patience and grace over yourself than God? You think your sacrifices and your sweating and your trying to amend for your sins is greater than the blood and the sacrifice and the body and the soul of Jesus Christ laid down for you? Do you think your sins are so great it can exhaust literally an ocean? An ocean? Your sin of a lifetime. Yo, you, I know you think it's so heinous and horrible. It is. It is. Because it's done against an infinite God. But it is like a cup full. You amount all of your sins. It may be fill up this cup. In comparison to. The ocean. Of the cleansing purifying blood of Jesus Christ. That can take away all sin. Not just the sins of transgressions. Not the sins of iniquity. But every and all sins in total. Specific. Once and forevermore. That's the gospel. The gospel of Nassau. That's why the psalmist says, every transgression is forgiven. My sin is covered. And he does not impute iniquity. That's how we should pray. My guilt. 
That's how we should pray our guilt. By the way, before we just move into praying my shame, did you know that the only sins you're going to make progress against, the only sins you're going to overcome, are the forgiven ones? The only sins you're really going to fight and crucify and overcome are the ones you know are covered by the blood of Jesus. The sins that God does not hold against you. The sins that God will not remember anymore. They cannot rise up against you because Jesus took it all into his death. And his resurrection. Praying my guilt. Praying my guilt. Oh, praying my shame. So much of Psalm 32 and other Psalms have to do with shame. Sin brings at least two things. Guilt was what? It was the resultant legal objective condition of having committed sin against God. That's guilt. Shame. Shame. Sin brings both. Sin brings both. Because in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve ate of that one tree that they were not supposed to eat. That's just how sin works. Sin is replacing, taking the place of God. You can do a million things, but just don't do the millionth one thing. Sin says, why can't I do that one thing? Because sin pretends and makes you feel like you should be God. It didn't matter what tree. I really, I don't think it was a, it was just, I obviously think it's an arbitrary random tree. There's nothing special about the tree. It's just the tree that God said, don't eat this one. And they ate it. And the eyes of both of them were opened and all devastation and ruin happened. It's called the fall. The fall. And what sin does is it not only brings a complete breakage between your relationship with God, shame entered the place, and now Adam and Eve were completely ruined and divided as well. It's more social. It's more communal. By the way, you know the Apple logo, as I understand, was taken from that enlightenment that you're supposed to get from eating of that fruit. Hello, logo. And this is where the shame comes and how sin works. Let me define it. Let me define it. If guilt is legal, linear, and individualistic, shame is much more social, more communal. It brings both an awful sense and feeling and experience. Again, sin brings both. Maybe the most recent best example I can think of is right here. I think it's in Flushing, right? The U.S. Open, is that in Flushing? One of my dreams to go there one day, hopefully. I don't know why they came out. But maybe it's a self-interested plug. (laughs) Hello. I'll be back in September if you tell me. And at the finals, uh, Venus Williams played Naomi Osaka from Japan. Naomi Osaka won. Every Asian was like proud. Right? Jeremy Lin, crazy rich Asians, whatever. We want more representation. Thanks be to God, right? Naomi Osaka won. And do you remember anyone watched the speeches after There's your perfect illustration of shame. 
in Eastern cultures. When they gave the microphone to Naomi Osaka, who just won the U.S. Open, her first words was, I'm sorry. She apologized. You know why she apologized? Because it was so crystal clear to her, and Western folks have no sensitivity about this. They basically told her, we all wanted Venus to win. And so Naomi Osaka, who has a worldview and a culture where it is about not yourself individualistically, but about pleasing your surroundings and other people, she tearfully apologized. She actually looks sad. Jackson Wu, in a book entitled Saving God's Face, a Chinese contextualization of salvation through honor and shame, discusses the concept of, quote-unquote, losing face. Losing face. I don't have to unpack that here at all. I did unpack this at a Gospel Coalition Asian American conference recently in California. And Asian Americans, even within the Gospel Coalition, one of our desires is to bring about more multiple angles and expressions and applications of the gospel, not just to Western society from Western folks, but to Easterners from Eastern folks. Losing face. What is that? You know what that is. It's all about honor and shame. And I have something to confess to you tonight, because I recently gave this sermon at our church, almost tearfully. I've lost count how many sermons and Bible studies I've given on guilt, 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 guilt. Do you know why? Because I was taught well, and I've been taught in the West. Recently was the first sermon I ever gave explicitly and extensively on shame. While the facts are that in the New Testament scriptures, Apostle Paul talks way more about shame than guilt. And the majority of today's world population functions under shame, not guilt. Sin does bring both. One more example, Dr. Brené Brown. I'm sure you've never heard of her. She's like blown up. University of Houston professor in a book entitled Daring Greatly defines shame as I'm not worthy or good enough for love, belonging, or connection. I'm unlovable. I don't belong. Okay, let me say that again. Defining shame It's not the legal condition of guilt. Remember, it emphasizes more on being guilty than feeling guilty. Shame is the awful, at least feeling and experience that there is no one who could really love and accept you and welcome you if they knew everything about you. It's always trying to save face. It's always trying to protect. It's always trying to filter information. Sin brings this too. And for some of us in this room, this kind of talk, this kind of mantra, this kind of anthem, this is the soundtrack to your life. It's on endless repeat. Every day you wake up, you basically feel nobody would ever get to, if if anybody really ever got to know you, all of you, your family history, your deepest, darkest secrets, there is no way someone could actually still really love you. And this is according to Brené Brown. Listen to this. Guilt can be a positive and helpful motivator for change, while shame rarely produces healthy outcomes. Guilt says you have done bad and wrong and wicked things. Shame says you are just so bad and wrong and evil, irredeemable. 
And in Brown's research, shame brings much more self-destructive and destructive consequences because you loathe yourself, you will hurt yourself. It's a reason for many addictions, all kinds of anger problems, disorders, depression. And listen, listen close again. If you hate and loathe and really don't like yourself at all, Guaranteed to come out where you will hate and loathe and not like other people. You see, if you feel like you should hurt yourself, because that's what you deserve. That's what shame tells you all the time. You feel so unworthy and you feel less than. You feel like you should hurt yourself. What do you think you're going to do with other people? Here's three typical ways we deal with shame. We see it in Adam and Eve. We don't have to guess. We don't have to be experts. God reveals in Genesis, sin brings guilt, sin brings shame. And then this is how you're going to try to deal with shame. Number one, we hide and keep secrets. Because we're so ashamed, we hide and keep secrets. I'm not talking about just that you're introverted. That's fine. I'm not just talking about that you're shy. In fact, that's actually really good usually in the kingdom of God. You're not self-promoting. I am talking about an utter, isolated, antisocial barrier to your life. <clears throat> where no one really knows who you are. You see, God is walking in the garden and he's calling after Adam even after they sinned. God is initiating. God is seeking. God is welcoming back. God is not lacking information on what you have done. God is not lacking information on what Adam and Eve has done. But why is he still walking in the garden? Because he's initiating, opening, welcoming back. And what is Adam's response after Genesis chapter 3 verse 8? God calls out, Adam, Adam, verse 8. In the cool of the day, God called to the man and said, where are you? Verse 9, here's verse 10. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. So where does this all come from? The nauseating sense where you run from God. You don't want to be with God's people. You really don't want to hear and sit under God's word. You don't want to be a church. You don't really want to be known. You don't want counseling. You don't want people to really kind of interrupt or interfere in your private affairs. You don't want people to hold you accountable. You don't want filters. You don't want phone calls. Where is this all coming from? Where is all that hiding and shaming coming from? It's right here. What once used to be the utter delight and freedom and security of all of humanity, which was to be and walk with God, sin entered in, and now we're afraid, and we're running as hard as we can. The other way. And yet God comes seeking and looking for you. He doesn't want you to run as far as you can the other way. That's why the Bible, thank God, doesn't end with Genesis chapter 3. But this is typically how we deal with, with shame. Let me let you in on a dirty little secret. You ready for it? 
Everybody in this room has a dirty little secret. Everybody. Everybody. Something financial. Something criminal. Something addictive. Something to do with your childhood. Something to do right now. Right now. Right now. There is some dirty, dirty little secret. And my friends... Do you know what shame will always do, especially in our cultures? It is the most effective killer because you'll keep it secret. Do you know what your worst sins are? All sins can be forgiven. Jesus will always love you. His heart will break. He'll keep coming after you. But listen to me close. On this side of heaven, do you know what the most destructive, demonic, consequential sins are? It's the sins nobody knows about. Do you know how many marriages have come to me in effect after it's too late? Do you know there was a year at our church I had back-to-back suicides in the span of three months and a third questionably suicide or not? I'm not quite sure. One absolutely ripped out my heart. He's probably one of the closest 25 people at our church. I fell into depression. I went to the hospital. Because not that I was appalled at what he was into. I had to question my life and my entire church community that he felt he had to keep it secret what he was into. And what we would give now to do anything for that young man if he had just fought through some shame, not kept it secret, and been able to share and get the love and the help and the friendships of, of the church. I'm not saying you got to stand up here at a microphone and share it to the whole world. No, that's actually, that's, that's impractical and unwise. I'm not saying you got to go online and share everything about it. But do you have anybody? Do you have anybody? Do you know one of the marks that you really belong to New Creation Fellowship is not that you come and sit and sing? One of the marks, biblically speaking, that you really belong to a church is can you confess your sins to one another? Do you have anyone you can do that with? James, confess your sins to one another? Do you have anyone who can ask you any question anytime about anything? Do you have true brotherhood and sisterhood, accountability? As long as we hide and keep secrets, shame effectively kills. Number two, tendencies. We blame shift. We blame shift. This is how we typically try to deal with shame. We blame shift. Oh, it's the woman you gave me, God. (laughs) And the woman says, it's the serpent, the snake. By the way, that snake talked to me. Blame shift. And usually hiding and keeping secrets and blame shifting go hand in hand. This is from a book on the dynamics of grace and shame in Asian American context from Dr. Ben Shin. And here's his real life experience. One day he found out he was an English ministry pastor of a church uh, in in K-Town. 
And um, this is what happened to him. He found out abruptly several couples just left his church. And the pastor heard from another pastor who welcomed those couples from his church and gone to the other church. And so the other pastor, of course, called Ben to just see how he was doing. And so Ben himself called each husband that he'd actually been regularly meeting and counseling and asked if everything was all right. Each husband responded, yes, 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 everything's great. Later to find out that each lied. They all hid why they left the church. While they, of course, told everyone on the congregation that was close to them why they were leaving the church. Then later on, Ben Shin found out that these couples, all related to prominent elders or leaders of that church on the Korean-speaking side, in fact, elders, and he soon realized that they all left blaming their pastor, Ben, as a bad uncaring and not really involved pastor. And then the elders in that mother church turned around with a motion to fire Ben. Of course, Ben as a pastor was shocked, hurt, confused, saddened. Eventually, it was discovered that several of the couples who had left his church, they filed for divorce. And everything began to make sense to avoid shame to themselves, and especially to their families, their family name, these are elders, they hid, they ran. To avoid shame, and they blamed someone else. Hiding keeps secrets, and we blame shift. Third typical response, camouflage. Camouflage. Real simple. Camouflage is, you just camouflage, you overcompensate. You actually become very, very active at church. While your home life is just being totally torn apart. You could be at every religious activity. Bigger, louder, better. But it's a camouflage attempt. Just like Adam and Eve did. Where they hid and clothed themselves with leaves. (laughs) Well, here's why Jesus came. Here's why he carried a heavy wooden cross. And he suffered under the crushing weight of God's own hand. Christ Jesus came to cover me and all of my shame at his crucifixion. At least four transactions took place at the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Number one, Jesus carried that cross publicly. Publicly. He did not hide. It was not in a corner. It was public. Worldwide. Luke chapter 23, verse 26. Everything was out in the open. (laughs) Clarence Thomas, during his Supreme Court justice trial, precursor to a recent one, says, what I want to keep private, I will keep private. And he was defiant and angry. Jesus did not take this line. He was totally stripped, totally exposed. He carried the cross publicly. My friends, listen to that close. Please take that in. Jesus came to cover you. How? Not in secret, some private ceremony. He did it worldwide, publicly. Number two, Jesus was mocked and beaten and beaten and beaten and beaten. Jesus was mocked and hurt and cut and lacerated and beaten. He took my place painfully, painfully, miserably, torturously. Please hold on to this. This is what Jesus had to go through to cover my shame. He went public, and he went through it painfully. 
Third, Jesus was given a crown of thorns, absorbing my humiliation and disgrace. My humiliation and disgrace. You do know that you're a power-hungry person, you're a control-hungry person, if your greatest nightmare and fear is that you would be humiliated. If you're into comfort, it's just that you're discomforted. If you're into approval or liking, it's that you are rejected. But Jesus actually went through humiliation and disgrace, out in public, out in the open, and he took it painfully. A fourth transaction that Jesus took in my place as my scapegoat, my substitute savior. He was finally crucified, laying to rest all our shame. All our shame. Here's how it works. The gospel works for anyone from anywhere in any culture. All cultures have problems and all cultures have beauties. Brené Brown's definition of defining shame understands Eastern culture very well, but she's a Westerner too. So please have a caution to her definition. When she says defining shame is you feel unworthy to belong, unworthy to be loved, unworthy to be included, and that you're utterly worthless. That is from a Westerner. And other people have come along with that definition and they've taken it on steroids and they run amok with this and say you see now i can hate my asian parents asian institutions asian culture asian churches because all they did was shame me shame me shame me please don't misunderstand shaming sometimes might be appropriate in certain dosages shaming is not the fault of someone else who shamed you if you and i have done actually something wrong The Bible challenges every culture. And there is no solution in this room as we talk about shaming that you loathe your Asian-ness. That now you go and hate your Asian parents. That now you want to be totally independent, rebellious and say, I don't want to be Asian at all. I just want to be Christian. What does it mean to be Christian? In your shoes. In your. It means that Jesus Christ can deal with one of the most prominent things that kills off communities. And he came to cover all of our shame. And in honor and shame cultures, Jesus, who is innocent on all accounts, experienced such shame. And by taking your shame, he bestows upon you his honor. Just as with your guilt... He lifts up and forgives you, Nasa, because Jesus got crushed with your shame. Jesus was crucified for all your shame and actually bestows upon you an honor. An honor throughout eternity that can never be lost or diminished, but it's yours. Here's what this means practically. Because Jesus got exposed publicly, he gives us permission to be exposed and open and confess. Show me a person who really understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a person who doesn't have to hide and keep secrets, but can actually come out in the open and talk about something shameful. Why? Because Jesus went public to take your shame.
Jesus went through it painfully, painfully, right? Remember that, painfully? My friend, you don't have to keep beating down on yourself anymore. You really don't. You don't have to talk like that to yourself. You don't have to think like that about yourself. You don't have to keep repeating what other people said about you. You don't have to stop. You don't have to keep cutting yourself. You don't have to. You don't have to keep over medicating yourself. You don't have to keep trying to look a certain way with your body image. You don't have to keep putting yourself through the rigor and torture of pain. Because Jesus went through it painfully. You don't have to beat yourself down anymore. It can stop tonight. You don't have to beat yourself down anymore because Jesus got beat down, beat down, beat down, beat down once and for all for you. Jesus was disgraced and humiliated. So that in Psalm chapter three, you can lift up your head. It actually might even fix your posture into eye contact. You can lift up your eyes in your head. Not because what you have done is not shameful and embarrassing. No, it's because someone put on the emperor's robes, the king's clothing, royalty upon you. And in fact, what was so shameful and disgraceful to you, when Jesus comes into your life, he can use it as a story of the magnificence and the glory and the grace of God. Why is it that some of the best and brightest people at our church at CCSE are those who went through disgrace? who've gone through a divorce, who've gone through court trials, who've gone through something so embarrassing. and why, why would that be? Because when they sing, when they talk, when they lead a small group, when they serve, when they get up and talk about the magnificent Jesus Christ, you just know it's for real. And Jesus was crucified to take all our shame. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Apostle Paul talks about shame way more than guilt. He applies the gospel to both guilt and shame, but actually applies it more to shame. And as the old Scottish preacher said, for every look at sin or your shame or your guilt, please ten, take 10 more up at Jesus Christ. For every look, every time you look down and inward at what's wrong with me, I can't believe I did that. Someone said that or did that to me. Christian life is to look upward and outward at the scapegoat, at the one who took all my shame. And he bestows honor and forgiveness instead.